So chapter 25 then brings us to the tabernacle. I know we've gone through a lot of details and a lot of laws now, and it's kind of, okay, we've been looking at a lot of trees, but let's step back again and look at the forest a little bit. You've got the nation of Israel that just came out of slavery. They have completely, they have been seeing the actual power and the glory of God before them. They've been enslaved. They're oppressed. God appears to them in this giant pillar of fire and smoke that nobody has ever seen in their entire life. After 10 plagues, he leads them out of the wilderness through the Red Sea that builds up like walls. They then collapse upon the, the Egyptians and wipe them out. He takes them to the wilderness. You complain for three weeks. You complain for three weeks, about 50 days, to which every single time he responds with compassion and meeting all your complaints. He brings you to Mount Sinai with this big giant tornado and big ball of fire comes down on the mountain, lightning shooting out, the mountain's shaking, rocks are falling down everywhere, and this booming righteous voice comes out and speaks to you. Nobody has ever experienced anything like this, ever. I mean, this isn't... I mean, this would be an incredibly awesome sight to see in a movie. I mean, even to this day, Cecil DeMille's The Ten Commandments is still very impressive to me. Okay, even without the CGI and all that kind of stuff. It's a, when you think like, wow, that's a real mountain with a real fire, and that's incredibly impressive. And that probably doesn't get anywhere close to what they really saw in real life because this is also God. I mean, the Ten Commandments movie can just do the fire, but they can't do God's righteousness coming out of it. So you're seeing this, and God verbally speaks to you, and it scares the crap out of you. But at the same time, you know that he's still a good God, so you say, we will do everything. And then you then make a covenant, a huge covenant. This would have been a bigger deal and more serious than a wedding. You think the wedding is probably the biggest event of our life, except for the birth of children, most of us. And here you are making a covenant with God, and you're not standing before a beautiful husband or wife. You're standing in front of the pillar of God and the fire and the lightning. You're making a covenant with him and you agree to him. And now you're standing at the base of the mountain, and for the next 40 days, God is giving instructions on how to build this tabernacle because you now know that once you get these instructions and build it, God is not going to be up on that mountain anymore. He's going to be in the midst of you. Because God is going to build a tent that's only about 150 by 70 feet wide. The the whole courtyard, the tent's only 15 by 45 feet. That's a small room. And you're allowed, and you're actually told that you're you're to build all, set up all your tents as close as you possibly can get to this courtyard except the Levites have to be between you and them. That pillar of fire is going to be, if you're in that front tent, that pillar of fire is going to be closer to you than the length of a football field. No other God has ever spoken to you. No other God has ever brought a prophet into your life, let alone actually appeared to you on the mountain and then come down and lived in a football field with you, right on the ground. That's what's coming. So I want you to understand that as we go through this. Now, here's the thing. Normally, I would, logically, I would go through the tabernacle like you walk through a house. 
go through the first gate, and I would show you this article and this article, and then we go through the tabernacle, and I show you that and that and that. But that's not the order God does it. God does it in what is the most holy. So he starts in the center first, where he is, and then he works out to all the sacred objects that have to do with who God is in his character. He starts with the objects that most accurately communicate his character. And then he goes back in the tabernacle and works out and deals with the objects that have to do with our relationship with God. So we're not going to go necessarily in a, here's a logical tour of the tabernacle order. We're going to go in the order that God does. And so what he does, he starts in the middle with the most holy and works outward with all the articles that says, this is what my character's like. And then he goes back in the tabernacle and moves outward and says, this is how you make your relationship right with me so you can come into the tabernacle. Once we go through that, I'll kind of really crash course, give you an overview and logically go through in logical order to help put it all in. So now we're going in topical order now. And then at the very end, I'll review in a logical front door to back room kind of an order. So this is the tabernacle. Um, so basically, you have a courtyard. The courtyard has a white fence around it, and it's about um, 150 by 75 feet, and it has two articles in the courtyard, and one is the bronze altar, which you sacrifice animals on, and then the bronze wash basin, which you cleanse yourself in, and then you walk into the tent itself. The tent is divided into two rooms. Okay, so that's the essence of the tabernacle. And then that light coming out of the top is the Shekinah glory of God. So here's another picture, tabernacle. The first thing I'm going to start with is colors. There's a lot of colors in the tabernacle. So I'm going to start with just the symbology of colors and what they mean. So the first color that you're going to come across, not in order, but I'm just going to kind of deal on the thing, is gold. Gold is very vibrant very sparkly, and it represents the glory of God. Gold is the most reflective. It will reflect the light and shine the light and amplify the light more than anything else. You have to realize that everything inside this tabernacle is gold-plated. You Basically, all you see is blue fabric and gold plates. All their two-by-fours are completely exposed, and they're all gold-plated. At the same time, they're shining tons of candles in there. Which means when you walk in the tabernacle, it's going to be bright. Which means you're going to probably have to have your Jew bands on when you walk in. Okay, to help shield you. So gold is, represents the glory of God. The next color is silver. Silver symbolically represents redemption. Redeeming somebody. Okay, this is why Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Three is a... 30 is a multiple of 3, which is redemption. Silver is redemption. That betrayal leads to our redemption. So silver is symbolic of redemption. Bronze is the next one. Bronze is symbolic of judgment. The next color is blue. Blue is symbolic of the spiritual realm. Stability, loyalty, fidelity. This is why a lot of your banks are blue. You're trying to communicate we're stable and we're trustworthy and we're loyal. We'll always be around. That or green, because they're trying to say, I got money. Blue, purple is a symbol of royalty, kingship. Blue and purple are some of the most expensive colors because they're the hardest to make. And one of the reasons that purple gets connected with royalty and kingship is the only way you can make purple dye in the ancient world is with a snail in the Red Sea. 
and you would squeeze a snail and it would eject a little bit of ink, and the ink was purple. But within about a minute or so, it would oxidize with the oxygen and it would go black. Like your blood is red, but then it oxidizes and goes black. So they would have to run it through a brine in order to keep that catalytic oxidizing from happening and keep the purple. That means you only get a teeny little bit of ink out of a snail, which is a lot of hard work to get the snail. Then you have to squeeze it and you have to put it through a brine. So it became a very expensive dye to do your entire clothing, which means the only people who could afford it were kings, and that's why purple became the symbol of kings. And so blue is kind of hard too, but not as difficult. So blue represents spirituality, and that's why the domes of Greek homes are blue. A lot, not, not in every home, but a lot of the paintings, if you've seen those... Part of it is blue because when you look up, you look at the spiritual realm and it's all blue. That's why the Smurfs are blue. Okay, the faces of Hindu gods are blue because they all represent spirituality, spiritual realm. So purple is royalty. The next color is white. White represents purity, righteousness, cleansliness. This is why brides wear white dresses. And then the next color is red. Red symbolizes atonement, sacrifice, mostly because it's blood, the color of blood. So keep those colors in mind as we go through, and I explain to you what color things are as we go through the tabernacle. So here's a diagram of the tabernacle. So I've already kind of talked about it. You enter a gate. There's only one gate. You enter through that gate. It's in the east. You move westward, because remember, moving westward is good, because when you move westward, you're going towards the Garden of Eden. If you move eastward, that was Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the Garden Eden. So moving eastward is always walking away from God theologically, not literally. And then moving westward is always walking towards God in the Bible. So you go westward through the gate. The only way to get through that gate is with an animal sacrifice. You go to the altar and then the wash basin. And then you get into the tabernacle. The tabernacle is divided into two rooms. Now the courtyard, any Jew... It's a part of the Abrahamic covenant is allowed in the tabernacle. As long as you're part of the Abrahamic covenant and you have an animal sacrifice, you're allowed in the courtyard. You're allowed in the courtyard. The holy place contained three items. The table of showbread, the candle stand, and the altar of incense. The only people who were allowed in the holy place were the priests and the firstborn priests. Remember, Levi is eventually going to be the priest. That's not what God wanted but eventually they will be the priests. So this will only be the firstborn Levites that are allowed in here. All the second, third, fourthborn Levites, they're like pastors in the neighborhoods and out with the people. But the only people allowed in here are the firstborn Levites. Then you walk through the veil and you go into the Holy of Holies, which has the um, Ark of the Covenant. The only persons allowed in there is the high priest one time a year on what's called the Day of Atonement. Now, like I said, I'm going, to, I'm going to go through this again and again and again. But right now, I'm just kind of giving you a quick overview. So every time you get closer and closer to God, that it gets more and more restricted based on your righteousness. The more righteous you are, the closer you can get to the Holy of Holies and God. The less righteous you are, the further away you are. And so this tabernacle, like I said, is this whole tent, this double room tent, is 45 feet long and 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. So it's not a big room. A lot of the Jews built it together. Oh, they built, they but it did not become sacred until God's glory entered it. Oh, I see. 
And the more holy the item, the, the only a certain Ohio, um, I can always, I always want to say Ohio, but that's not how you say his name. And um, two craftsmen responsible for this really special stuff. So the first thing God does is he commands Moses to collect all this fabric and all this gold and all this silver and all this bronze from all the people. Now, where did all these slaves get all this wealth to gold plate, silver plate, and bronze plate everything? Egypt. Because this is their tithe to God. God gave them all this money so that they could give part of it to building a house that they could live with God. Because this is what the Bible is going to later call in Leviticus their first fruits offering. You give your first of your fruits to God. And that includes anything. Literal fruit, financial fruit, time fruit, emotional fruit, physical fruit, whatever. It always goes to God. So the first thing that God talks about is the Ark of the Covenant. So in the most center room, it's a square, a perfect cube. In the middle of this room is the Ark of the Covenant. And this is what it's to look like. The Ark of the Covenant is to be made of acacia wood, and it is to be gold-plated. It is not solid gold. It's gold wood, gold-plated. There are two parts to the Ark of the Covenant. The first part is the actual box, the Ark of the Covenant, and the second part is this, like where all these spiky things are, is the lid with the cherubim on top. This is called the atonement lid. You might have heard somebody call it the mercy seat, but that's not exactly the best translation. It, that seems to be more of a slang term that the Jews gave to it. But the official term that God gave it to was the atonement lid. So this is the ark. This is gold-plated because gold represents the glory of God. And the idea is that eventually they're going to put three things into this thing. And the three things are going to be the jar of manna from their complaining, the broken Ten Commandments from their sin with the golden calf that's going to happen in chapter 32, and Aaron's budded staff that's going to happen in Numbers. And if you don't remember that story, basically a bunch of people rebelled against Aaron's priesthood and said, well, I think we should be priests, which basically they are saying, I don't think your tradition is right, God. I'm going to be the leader. And God says, we'll find out who's really going to be priests. Whoever's staff is buds and almond flowers, that's the person I picked. So after that rebellion, they put his staff in there, which means what does the Ark of the Covenant actually contain? The sins of the people. Now, this ark symbolizes the presence of God. It is on top of this ark that God's glory is going to sit on top of it. It's going to go through the tent without burning a hole in it. And it's going to sit on top of the ark of the covenant. It represents his presence. It is so holy that nobody is allowed to look at it or touch it. When they do take down the tent and move things around, the first thing they'll do is they'll cover that up without looking at it. And they'll carry it by these poles and nobody's allowed to look at it. So when you read about the ark going into the, the Jordan River first with Joshua and the Jordan River, the ark was covered with a sheet. Okay, so nobody's allowed to look at it or touch it because this is like walking up to God himself and touching him. Now we know none of this is literal. It's not like this is a magic box. It's not Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, it's not magical. It's, it's just this represents it. And if you can't treat the physical, symbolic representation of God with respect, then you, you're not treating him. Just like this wedding ring. This wedding ring is not my wife. It does not make me married. But if I take it off and throw it on the ground, 
you're you're gonna think like you're gonna interpret that in how I feel about my wife, right? And you would correctly do so. Because if I can't treat this symbol with respect, then I'm not going to be able to... That says something about how I treat my wife and what I think about her. And so the reality is, that's what the ark is. It's not magical. It's not supernatural. It's just this is the closest you can get to a physical presence of God. So the way that you treat it says something about how you treat God. That's all it ever was. The atonement lid has two cherubim on it. The cherubim are the guardians to the Garden of Eden. They are the guardians of God. And you're like, well, God needs guardians. No, he doesn't. Why does God have guardians? To protect you from God. Because they become a shield between you and God's glory so you don't die when you walk into his presence. Remember, there's only three ways you can get into God's presence. You're perfect, the blood of Christ, or you're surrounded by angels. Now, most of us prefer to be perfect. The blood of Christ is a definitely good, but none of us want to have a relationship with God with about a thousand angels between us and him. So yeah, you're kind of in the presence of God and you get to see this really cool vision like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel, but you also have about like 50,000 angels between you and God. That's not much of a relationship. If that's what your marriage is like, it's not a good marriage, okay? It's like you and she's on one side of the football field and you're on the other side. So this is called the atonement lid. Now, why? What's going on here? How can the presence of God symbolically also contain the sins of the people? I just thought you told you that God can't have sin in him. This is the way it works. This is called the atonement lid. This is also why it's called the mercy seat. What they did is when they put these objects in it, that means this box contains the sins of the people. What is between them and God now? Two cherubim. The cherubim cover with their wings the sins of the people so that God can look at the people and be with them because their sins are covered by the wings of angels. But that's not good enough. So when we get to the book of Leviticus, we're going to learn that the sins of the people begin to stack up over time, specifically sins of ignorance, all those things that you didn't know you were doing wrong and yet you're still doing them, so they're still sins, so they're still, and they're not getting atoned for because you didn't know that you were doing them. So all these sins build up for the entire year. And they finally get so bad that God says, I can't be with you anymore. You're so sinful and you're so unrighteous, I can't be with you anymore. So what the high priest is going to do is he's going to walk into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And he's going to take the blood of a goat. And we'll go into this in more detail when we get to Leviticus 16. But this is kind of a, a, an overview. He's going to pour the blood on the atonement lid, which will make atonement for their sins which means when God looks down, he sees the blood of a perfect lamb instead of their sins, which allows him to come and dwell with them. And so this becomes the footstool of God. So God is up in heaven, sitting on this throne, and his legs, the pillar of fire is his legs. And the pillar of fire comes down from heaven to earth, and heaven and earth are linked together in this moment. Space, time, and matter that his legs, the pillar of fire, become like an umbilical cord. And his feet sits on top of the Ark of the Covenant. This is his footstool. And it's so righteous and holy that it's shining with the glory of God and you're not allowed to touch it. And basically what he's saying is this, is your sins are so bad it has to be covered with the blood of an animal. But your blood of an animal can only cover your sins so much that only my feet can rest with you. 
This is why it's going to be such a big deal when Christ comes along, he's going to fulfill this. And why is it so important that you understand that the sins of the people are in the presence of God? Because when Christ comes, he is going to be the presence of God. But not only that, we're going to be told that he will become sin for us. But not only that, he's going to become the atonement lamb sacrifice that's going to cover our sins so that he becomes the atonement lid. And his blood is poured out over our sins so that when God looks down on us, he sees the blood of Jesus Christ and not our sins, which allows Christ to not just put his feet on us, but because his blood is superior to the blood of an animal, Christ will actually be able to live inside of us. See, when Paul is using the language that the blood of Christ covers your sins so that he may dwell with you, every Jew automatically begins to think of this. Because the only time they've ever heard the language of blood covering your sins is the day of atonement where the blood of animals poured over the mercy or the atonement lid. And so Christ is literally going to fulfill this by becoming the Ark of the Covenant, becoming the sins of the people, becoming the atonement, becoming the blood sacrifice, and becoming the Shekinah glory of God that's going to dwell in us. He's going to fulfill all parts. And what would be really confusing, sin and the presence of God, actually makes perfect sense once Christ comes along. Does that make sense? And that's why it's glorious with gold.